having established God's law as the permanent and binding law of his kingdom, Jesus sets forth to correct six pharisaical misinterpretations of it. His making of these corrections underscores the importance of accurately handling the word of truth, as commanded in 2 Timothy 2.15. God's word, which includes his law, is not subjective to the whims of human interpretation. Because the word is God's word, he must be the determiner of its meaning and application. Hence, on several occasions in both Testaments, God forbid the adding, removing, or changing of his word. Deuteronomy chapter 4.2 You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. Deuteronomy 12.32 Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Proverbs 30, verse 6, Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Revelation 22, 18-19, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now, because the Holy Spirit saw fit to include these corrections of misinterpretations in the Holy Writ, it accentuates their relevance to us as believers today. As Paul declared in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we must know that the sixth commandment prohibits the physical act of murder, as well as hate, unjust anger, and demeaning and derogatory words, Matthew 5, to 26 As well, we must know that the seventh commandment prohibits not only the act of adultery, but lust. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Another critical aspect of the law for today is the divorce allowance in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Not only is the divorce allowance upheld, but it applies in cases of adultery, desertion, abuse, and addiction. Nevertheless, let me give a word of warning. Correct knowledge of Scripture is not sufficient in and of itself. We as kingdom citizens must hear and heed, that is obey, God's word. Now in Matthew 5.33-37, Jesus corrects the misinterpretation of the third commandment and the swearing of oaths. While swearing an oath may seem insignificant, that Jesus addresses the issue, underscores that we should give prayerful consideration to it. As Jesus reveals the issue of swearing oaths is an issue of integrity and honesty in speech. Hence, every believer should heed Jesus' discussion on swearing oaths and the kingdom citizen. As Jesus addresses the issue of swearing oaths in the kingdom citizen, he begins by restoring the original intent of the third commandment. 
Thus, in Matthew 5, 33 to 36, we have set forth the third commandment properly interpreted. The third commandment properly interpreted. Let's pick up in verse 33 of Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Like the previous misinterpretations, Jesus begins with the phrase, you have heard. This phrase refers to the Pharisees' superficial, narrow interpretations of the law. The Pharisees viewed the law as a yoke and a burden, as previously discussed. As such, they sought to make the law's yoke easy and burden light by making God's commands less demanding and his permissions more permissible. As we'll explore, this philosophy of making God's commandments less demanding is the motivation behind the pharisaical misinterpretation of the third commandment. The phrase, the ancients were told, refers to the rabbinic teachings collected in the Talmud, specifically Tractates Shavuot and Nadarim. The phraseology here is unique in that it implies that the Pharisees were quoting from the Torah. However, what follows, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord, is not a direct quote, but a rabbinic summary of two biblical texts. The first text is found in Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. It says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23.21 is the second text. Deuteronomy 23.21 When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Now notice here that the law did not forbid oaths or vows, but instead regulated them. First, any vow or oath must be fulfilled and not broken. Again, any vow or oath must be fulfilled and not broken. Second, no one was to delay in keeping or fulfilling their vow or oath. Again, no one was to delay in keeping or fulfilling their vow or oath. However, in summarizing the law's teaching on taking vows or swearing oaths, the Pharisees diverted the people's attention away from the third commandment upon which each of these texts is built. The third commandment says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. You see, in the Semitic culture, a person's name is tied to their character or reputation. Psalm 111 verse 9 declares, Holy and awesome is his name. That his name is holy, Kadash, implies that God's character is pure or sinless. Majestic, Yare, conveys the idea that God's reputation inspires reverence. The term vain, Shalav, means to value something as worthless. 
Hence, to take God's name in vain is to bring dishonor upon God's character or reputation. In other words, you're treating God's character or you're treating God's reputation as if it's worthless. Now, perhaps you're asking, how does dishonoring God's name tie to taking vows or swearing oaths? The answer is found in Deuteronomy 10.20 and Leviticus 19.12. Deuteronomy 10.20 and Leviticus 19.12. According to Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. All vows or oaths are to be sworn or guaranteed by Yahweh's name. According to Jeremiah 12, 16, the specific invocation of God's name in an oath was, as the Lord lives. In other words, as the Lord lives, I will do this or I will do that. A modern equivalent is invoking the phrase, Lord willing. Someone might say, Lord willing, I will do this or that. So to swear an oath by his name, is to declare loyalty to God and a commitment to keep your oath. As such, when you make a vow, you are using the Lord's character or reputation to guarantee its fulfillment. You see, my friends, whenever we make an oath, we must remember that ultimately we have made it to the Lord. Hence, we are bound to keep what we have promised to do. Now, do we always keep what we promise to do? If not, then we are breaking our vows or breaking our oaths. So Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall swear by his name. Leviticus 19.12 commands, you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. In other words, if someone breaks their vow or oath, they have sworn falsely or lied and profaned or defiled God's name. As such, they have used his name vainly or worthlessly. Now, after stating the pharisaical misinterpretation, Jesus says, but I say to you, that is, he authoritatively rebukes their teachings and traditions. And he continues with a command, make no oath at all. While it appears that Jesus condemns all vows or oaths, he is not, as we'll discuss momentarily. In reality, he elevates the third commandment and the laws regarding vows to their original divine intent. Now, the command, make no oath, may amasai, refers to confirming a statement's truthfulness with an oath, promise, or vow. At all, halas, would seem to apply that Jesus was forbidding all oath-taking. However, Jesus cannot alter the law. He cannot outright forbid all vows or oaths. Now, by reading the whole context, it is apparent that Jesus refers to particular vows or oaths, oaths that are sworn either by heaven or earth, Jerusalem, or one's head. 
Furthermore, there are several other proofs that underscore that Jesus was not forbidding all oaths and not all oaths are evil. Consider that God swore oaths guaranteeing the fulfillment of what he promises. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 11. God says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. He put his own name and reputation on the line. Hebrews chapter 7, 21 to 22. For they indeed became priests without an oath. But he, with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. My friends, God's oaths conform to his law. First, notice that he swore them according to himself. That is, he guaranteed them based on his character and reputation, i.e. his name. Second, because he is a God of integrity, what God vows to fulfill, he will fulfill. And third, God does not delay the fulfillment of his oaths. Now, while from humanity's perspective, the fulfillment may appear far off, everything God vows to do, he fulfills in the fullness of time. That is, he completes it at its intended time frame. Another proof that Jesus did not forbid all oaths is Jesus himself. During his trial, Jesus answered questions under oath. Matthew 26, 63 to 64. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are Christ the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. The phrase, I adjure, means to place one under an oath. Jesus swore an oath by the living God. Now, if Jesus forbade the swearing of all oaths in Matthew 5, and then swore an oath later in Matthew 26, not only would that make him a liar, it would disqualify him from being the Messiah. However, Jesus the Messiah is God in the flesh. Being God, he cannot lie. Thus, his command against making all oaths does not apply to all oaths. A final proof that Jesus did not forbid all oaths is Paul. Paul frequently invoked oaths to reinforce the truth of his message. Romans 1 verse 9. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. 2 Corinthians 1.23 I call God as a witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Galatians 1.20 now on what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2.5 and 10, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. So if Jesus forbids all oaths, then God is in violation, Paul is in violation, and Jesus himself is in violation. If they all violated the command, what does that say to the integrity of the New Testament? Obviously then, 
The command, make no oath at all, does not apply to every kind of oath, but only to those that are unlawful. That is, they do not conform to God's law. As an aside, Jesus' use of oaths in a judicial setting demonstrates that we can take an oath in a court of law. Paul also refers to oaths sworn in court. He states in Hebrews 6.16, quote, Men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Paul uses the example of courtroom oaths to demonstrate the validity of God swearing oaths. Now let's remember the Pharisees love to add loopholes to God's law to make the commands less demanding. Thus they invoked carefully worded oaths that were less binding and which they could legally reverse. The law stated if a man makes a vow to the Lord. The Pharisees rationalized that vowing by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or their head gave them legal ground to break their vows and therefore not be guilty before the Lord. After all, they were not vowing according to the Lord's name. In reality, the Pharisees used such oaths because they had no intention of keeping them. Now, Jesus rebukes each of these contrived oaths with a derash, or rabbinic interpretation of the Old Testament, to explain the law. Jesus declares that swearing an oath by heaven or by earth is problematic because heaven is the throne of God and the earth is the footstool of his feet. His rebuke is drawn from Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. He also declares that swearing by Jerusalem is troublesome because, quote, it is the city of the great king. Here, Jesus' rebuke is from Psalm 48, verse 2. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Jesus' point is that since heaven, earth, and Jerusalem ultimately belong to Yahweh, then swearing by heaven, earth, or Jerusalem is ultimately swearing an oath by the Lord. Jesus also forbids oaths sworn by your head. Guaranteeing an oath by your head is the equivalent of swearing by one's life to do something. Likely, the Pharisees concluded that since their head belonged to them, it was under their control. However, Jesus rebuked such oaths, saying, You cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, no one can naturally will their hair white or black. God predetermines the natural color of your hair. And as such, everyone's head ultimately belongs to God. Now, lest anyone think that Jesus' prohibition against unlawful oaths is limited to these four examples, consider James 5.12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. The phrase any other oath can be rendered as another oath of the same kind and refers to any other oath that is uttered unlawfully. To swear an oath by anything in the created realm is ultimately vowing it to the Lord. As Paul declares in Colossians 1.16, 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, the Pharisees believed that guaranteeing their oaths by these things relieved them of violating the command against taking God's name in vain. They failed to realize that all things ultimately belong to God. Guaranteeing an oath by anything that ultimately belongs to the Lord and breaking it later is a violation of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. Now, whereas Jesus properly interpreted the third commandment, he then practically applied it. Hence, Matthew five thirty-seven presents the third commandment practically applied. Now, let's recap. Jesus did not forbid all oaths, swearing. Solemn oaths sworn according to the law, fulfilled without delay, do not violate the third commandment. However, unlawful oaths, oaths made with no intention of fulfilling, profane God's name. Furthermore, let's add a wrinkle here. Promising to do something is the equivalent of taking a vow or swearing an oath. Thus, any believer who promises to do something and fails to do it has broken their vow and is guilty of profaning God's name. Does that apply to you? To this end, Jesus answers to the practical application of the third commandment is, quote, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. This phrase is a Hebraism invoking the idea that an outward or verbal yes should also be an inward or nonverbal yes. In other words, we should not swear to do something or promise to do something that we have no intention of fulfilling. Now, Jesus' command is based upon the law of fair trade found in Leviticus 19, 35-36. Leviticus 19, 35-36. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hint. Now, for trade to be fair or equitable, vendors must be truthful. Accordingly, Leviticus 19.35-36 demands vendors be honest in their transactions. They swore an oath that their scales were balanced and their weights were just. Furthermore, God declares that dishonesty in trade is an abomination. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 25.13-16. Deuteronomy 25 13 to 16. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, an abomination is a sin against God that is punishable by death. Other such abominations include incest, pedophilia, and rape. In other words, God views unlawful oaths the same as the illicit sexual relations. Why does he view them so severely? Again, his judgment severity is due to unlawful vows or oaths 
profaning his character and reputation. As well, let's note here that swearing oaths to cover falsehood are also unlawful because they violate the ninth commandment. Exodus 20.16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now in that phrase, let your statement be, yes, yes, no, no, the verb let be, a me, is imperative. A literal rendering of the phrase would state that a believer's yes, your yes, must genuinely be a yes, and your no must genuinely be a no. The issue here is one of truthfulness. Yes does not mean no, and no does not mean yes. Therefore, we should say what we mean and mean what we say. Jesus continues by stating, anything beyond these is of evil. Anything less than truthfulness in swearing an oath is abominable for the Lord and sets us up for judgment. Again, the actions of the Pharisees underlie Jesus' admonition. In Matthew 23, 16 to 22, Jesus confronted the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 16 to 22. Jesus says to them, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated, You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by both the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the the temple and by him who dwells within it. Whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. You see, the Pharisees swore their unlawful oaths to give an impression of truthfulness. They claimed that oaths sworn according to the temple or the altar meant nothing. That is, they had no plans on keeping their oaths. They simply used the oath to cover their deceptiveness. Jesus explains that they were obligated to keep their oath, whether they swore by the temple, the altar, the gold, or the gift. Because of their deceptiveness, Jesus announced prophetic judgment against them. Woe. Now, prophetic woe oracles were pronouncements of judgment against sin based upon the curses found in God's law. Deuteronomy 27, 15 to 26. Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary more. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. Cursed is he who distorts justice to an alien, orphan, or widow. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife. Cursed is he who lies with any animal. Cursed is he who lies with his sister. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. Cursed is he who does not confirm the word of this law by doing them. Now, a woe oracle follows a four-step pattern. First, the woe or judgments announced. Second, the person upon whom the woe is announced is described. Third, the charges or reasons for the woe are given. And fourth, the punishment for the crime is announced. In Matthew 23, 16-22, Jesus announced a woe or judgment against the Pharisees. He described them as blind guides. Then... He delivered the charges against them. Finally, Jesus announced their punishment in Matthew 23, 33. How will you escape the sentence of hell? In that context, Jesus charged them with deceit 
by giving themselves wiggle room to weasel out of their oaths. Their judgment was eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Because they swore an oath with no intention of keeping it, they were judged and sentenced to eternal punishment in the lake of fires. My friends, we should not word things in a manner that leaves any wiggle room for us to weasel out of our responsibilities later. As well, we ought to be known for honest speech. We should say what we mean and mean what we say. Furthermore, we should have no reason, especially with one another, to invoke an oath to guarantee the truthfulness of what we're saying. Sadly, like Peter, too many believers try to make their deception appear truthful. Matthew 26, 71-72 When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to him, Who were there? This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know that man. Any one of you who are guilty of using an oath to cover your deception ought to follow Peter's example. In verse 75 of Matthew 26, he went out and wept bitterly. That is, he went and repented. If you've sworn an oath to cover a falsehood or a deception, you need to break that oath and repent before judgment comes. Like the Pharisees, Believers who swear oaths deceptively will face judgment. James 5.12 warns your yeses to be yes and your no no since you may not fall under judgment. The verb fall, pipto, means to enter into a particular state or condition. It's in the subjunctive mood denoting something that is probable or intentional. In other words, if you swear a deceptive oath, you are intentionally entering into God's judgment. This is not a case of possibly being judged. Your judgment is determined and definite. That term judgment, crisis, denotes a legal decision rendered in a criminal case, resulting in punishment. Indeed, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, Every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Friends, we will stand before Jesus the judge and give an account not only of our deeds, but also of our words. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Christ's death and resurrection removed the penalty of death for sin. And friends, we ought to rejoice that our sins are forgiven and we'll never spend a moment in the lake of fire. But I'd like you to consider that at the Bema seat, Jesus will weigh every one of our works and words on his scale of justice. Unlawful and false oaths will fall on the side of the scale that will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. Those oaths are costly because they will result in a loss of our heavenly reward. And so in summary, friends, God's law does not prohibit oaths, but instead demands integrity in making and keeping them, because they are made based upon his character and reputation. As such, when we swear an oath, we must fulfill our oaths and not delay in their fulfillment. How often have we uttered unlawful oaths when facing a difficult situation? How many of you have prayed, Lord, if you do this, I'll do that? Such oaths are unlawful. You made that oath because the circumstance was overwhelming. And how soon after the circumstances changed, your oath was forgotten and broken.
any believer who has not fulfilled their oath is guilty of profaning God's name and must quickly repent to him. To invoke God's name in an oath and not keep that oath is to profane God's name. That is, you have treated God's character and reputation as worthless. Swearing an oath with no intention of keeping it or making an oath to make a lie appear truthful is to commit an abomination before the Lord. Again, such oaths are abominable because they violate the third and ninth commandments. Before swearing an oath, I'd like you to remember the words of Ecclesiastes 5.5. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. I'd like to make another point that should be considered regarding oaths. And that is, it is sometimes necessary to break an oath and repent. Sometimes unlawful oaths are made out of pride. Consider Herod. He swore to the daughter of Herodias that he would give her anything for her dancing. When she asked for John the Baptist to be murdered, Herod felt horrible. But not wanting to look bad in front of his guest, i.e. pride, he had John murdered. You can see that in Mark 6, 23 to 26. Sometimes oaths are made out of foolishness. Consider Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, 30 to 39. He vowed to sacrifice the first thing that walked out the door of his house when he returned from war. Upon returning from home, his daughter was the first to walk out the door to greet him. Foolishly, Jephthah kept the vow and killed his daughter. In both of these examples, oaths were made. And when these oaths required the murder of an innocent person, it placed both Herod and Jephthah in a moral quandary. God's law required that the oath be kept, but it also banned the murder of innocent people. In each situation, both men should have chosen to break their vow instead of murdering an innocent. In keeping their vow, an innocent life was lost, and they became guilty of murder. In breaking their vow, they would be guilty of profaning God's name, but an innocent life would be preserved. Either choice made them guilty of violating God's law. But they were morally obligated to protect an innocent life because human life is made in God's image. Friends, if you've made an oath, keep it. But if keeping that oath would lead you to another sin, then you need to break that oath and follow it with repentance. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we give you the thanks and the praise for the opportunity again to study your word to consider what your word has to say on the issue of vows or oaths, making promises. And Father, if we were all honest, we would have to admit that there are promises that we have made that we have not kept, perhaps out of ignorance or perhaps out of willingness. Whatever the case may be, let us repent before you. Father, perhaps some have made promises to you, made vows to you in the heat of a, of, a, of a circumstance and failed to keep it. And Father, I pray that they too might repent and that you might forgive. I pray that in all things, Lord, that we might be a people of integrity in our words. That our yes will be yes, our no will be no. That, Father, we will not try to make false promises, make false vows, unlawful oaths, to somehow 
get away with a lie. But that, Father, we would be, again, on people known for being people of truth, even when it hurts. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to that end, as kingdom citizens, to be people of integrity, especially in our speech. We pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.